Be seated. Would you pray with me? Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in this place be found pleasing in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the first time I preached on the Transfiguration, I was all of 27 years old. Um, in my first, uh, my first year of serving as chaplain at Ithaca College, and I wrestled with this text all week long, and Saturday evening comes along, and I had nothing, literally nothing. And so Sunday rolls around, and we're in our little service in the chapel, and I just lead them a little Bible study. Everyone gets around in a circle, and we just talk and have a great Bible study, which was fine. Um, I'd like to think I've learned a few things uh, since then, but I'll let you be the judge of that. Um, this is a really interesting scene, right? Um, very mystical and kind of nebulous. Um, but there is this context behind the transfiguration that each of the synoptic gospels share. So this scene is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and preceding the transfiguration, we have the same context in each one. So I'm going to back up a little bit from our passage into Mark chapter 8. Starting in verse 27, we see Jesus with his disciples walking along, and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And they give various answers. And then naturally, Peter gets the right response with the Messiah. Then Mark immediately goes on to say in the next verse, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And so Jesus is responding to Peter and basically saying, you're right, I am the Messiah, but this is what that means. This is what that is going to look like. And then Peter rebukes Jesus, the idea that the Messiah would have to suffer, much less die, was too much for Peter and then Jesus rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. And so then Jesus proceeds to flesh out a little bit what it's going to look like to follow him in the next few verses. If you desire to come after me, he says, take up your cross. Deny yourself. Be prepared to lose your life for my sake, but then to find it all over again. So by the time we get to this actual transfiguration scene, less than a week later, the disciples are, or at least ought to be, fully informed. They knew the cost, at least theoretically, of following the Messiah. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up this mountain all alone, and he just glows, right? Like, we don't know exactly what happened, but there's this brilliance, and there's this glowing, and his clothes are all white, and the disciples are afraid, and then Moses and Elijah pop up randomly, and Jesus is just hanging out, talking with Moses and Elijah. And Peter says, we should build booths so we can just hang out here for a while. And Mark is very apologetic for Peter. He's like, I, I, he didn't know what he was talking about. I apologize on his behalf. But he was scared. And so Peter offers to build booths. And then the cloud descends upon them. And we hear the voice of the Heavenly Father saying, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. And then Moses and Elijah disappear, and they're left with just Jesus. Peter's ready to settle down, 
right? Like he's bought the house, he's dug the garden, he's ready to stay there at the top of this mountain for as long as, you know, for who knows how long. Peter's confused, he's scared, and he's increasingly aware that following Jesus means abandoning all comforts and claims upon his own life and ultimately going back down the mountain. It's perhaps not a surprise then that the last Sunday before Lent is spent with Peter at the top of a mountain beholding the glory of the Lord so that we might be sustained in the valleys of the coming weeks. Much has been said about what exactly the transfiguration means. For our purposes this morning, I'm going to suggest that we can simply view it as a glimpse of the coming glory of the risen Lord. Not here yet, and a glory not of this world, but radiant and brilliant and captivating enough to capture our hearts and lead them in the loving, self-giving ways of Christ himself. Peter may have been impulsive and even a bit foolish at times, but he was right to consider the cost. In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes, when all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. By flesh, Bonhoeffer is not meaning to set up some false dichotomy here between the spiritual and the physical. In the New Testament, Paul uses this term flesh to signify like this world, basically, this present age characterized, as it were, by powers at work that are in opposition to God. It is in this sense that Bonhoeffer is articulating that a life lived following Jesus means that we will always be in the middle of competing powers and allegiances. There are kingdoms of self and sin and greed and empire that are necessary that we are necessarily at war against precisely belong precisely because we belong to the coming kingdom of God. Consider for a moment who appeared on that mountain with Jesus. Alongside the Messiah, who came proclaiming that in him the kingdom of God has come, we have Moses, who stood toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and emancipated the Hebrew slaves, and Elijah, who constantly threatened the crown by showing up and calling out the prophets of Baal. Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. All three knew something quite visceral about what it meant to live lives challenging and resisting and subverting human imperial power for the sake of the coming kingdom of God. So, as we enter into yet another tense and polarized election year, we would do well to remember that the gospel is inherently political. The kingdom of God stands in contrast with all other human kingdoms. However, it is not partisan. We are not called to a compromised middle ground. We are not called to a political party. Rather, as the body of Christ, we are called to embody and proclaim and pursue a different kingdom altogether. A kingdom marked by radical hospitality and love, freedom from all oppression, shalom, nonviolence, healing for the sick and the wounded, and the sanctity, dignity, and flourishing of all human life. Moses and Elijah had their own mountaintop encounters with the Lord. Before ever arriving at Mount Horeb, Elijah had put on quite the show. Fireworks and all. First Kings 18, we have this dramatic scene 
where Elijah had had a conversation with King Ahab, and he said, you know what, it's gotten too far. All of Israel is worshiping Baal, and they need to decide. Either we're going to worship Baal, or we're going to worship Yahweh. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get two bulls, we're going to sacrifice them on the altar. Prophets of Baal are going to pray to Baal to send fire down from heaven and consume the offering. And then I'm going to do the same thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And whichever God sends the fire down is the one true God. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, great idea, naturally. And so the prophets of Baal, they start praying for hours and hours, and nothing happens. And finally, they, just, they increase their game. Meanwhile, Elijah's mocking them, right? He's like, maybe your God got lost. Maybe your God fell asleep. Maybe he's on the toilet. That's actually what the Hebrew suggests. And the prophets of Baal just keep, just they're yelling and they're cutting themselves. It's this really tragic scene. And nothing happens. And so finally Elijah prays to Yahweh. And he says, show these people that you are the one true God. Meanwhile, he had poured water. He had, he had poured water all over the, the offering to make sure that everyone knew without a shadow of a doubt. And so, of course, fire falls down from heaven. And everyone acknowledges Yahweh as the one true God. And Elijah proceeds to round up all of Baal's prophets and kill them. King Ahab comes back from this scene and tells Jezebel, the queen, what happened. And she's out for blood. So Elijah's on the run, afraid for his life. Now, in his own fallen and flawed and, frankly, violent ways, Elijah had devoted his life to the resistance of earthly human kingdoms in faith that God had something better in mind. So much so that King Ahab calls him the great troubler of Israel. That's how you know you're doing something right. As the late civil rights icon John Lewis said, it's good trouble. It's good trouble. But that trouble had weighed on him. It had taken its toll. The picture we have of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, as he has fled to the wilderness, is of a fallen but faithful man of God who is tired and scared and lonely and depressed. And he, as he understands his own story, it is precisely his zeal, his passion for the Lord, that got him there in the first place. I suspect we can relate on some level. Perhaps we find ourselves in conflict with others precisely because of our faith. Or maybe we're afraid to own that faith in the first place, in any kind of public way. Or we're tired because faithfulness sometimes feels like we're constantly swimming upstream. Or perhaps our efforts at healing and reconciliation and justice feel as though we're merely spinning our wheels. Maybe there are parents in this room today, exhausted and stretched thin, who are out there every day trying to break old cycles and model something different and better for their own children. And discouragement is settling in. Well, the Lord meets Elijah as he does, precisely where he was. Elijah enters the wilderness ready to give up. He is asking to die. And what does the Lord do? He brings him a snack. Brings him a snack. The Lord brings Elijah a snack, and he lets him rest, and then he brings him another snack. 
The Lord tends to Elijah's bodily needs. His weakness is acknowledged and tended to. By the hand of God, sustenance and resources are delivered into a time and a season where there seemingly are none. When Elijah does make it to the mountain, the Lord grants him an audience. The Lord makes himself available to him, not in loud, dramatic, forceful ways, but in stillness and silence, or a low whisper, as the ESV translates it. So much so that Elijah knows that when that silence came, it was time to come out of the cave, out of the darkness, and into the presence of the Lord. But the silence itself was not the encounter with the Lord. It was the precursor to the encounter with the Lord. It was the silence that enabled Elijah to set aside, to mute the other voices in his life. Voices clamoring for his attention, voices of accusation, of discouragement, of isolation, and enabled him to be fully present with the con- for the confrontation with the Lord that was to come. And so it does come. And the Lord, again, listens to Elijah's story. What is Yahweh's response in that moment? There's two two parts. The second one was that there was correction. At least three times now, Elijah has said that he alone is left among the faithful. And so the Lord informs Elijah that there are, in fact, 7,000 left who have not bowed down to Baal. The powers at work in the world and in Elijah's own soul had convinced them, convinced him that he was all alone. That no one would understand him, that there was no one to confide in or find solace in, no one to journey with. The Lord speaks truth to Elijah in this moment, and by having him then anoint Elisha as his successor, draws him more faithfully into community and therefore health and well-being. But before this, when Elijah relates his story to Yahweh for the second time, the Lord's response is simply, go. Almost seems kind of callous, right? Given all that he had been through. Go. Return on your way. Go back to the conflict. Go back to the trouble. Go back to the risk. Elijah needed to tell his story. And he needed to tell it over and over again. Elijah needed rest, he needed community, and he needed an audience with the Lord. But now that God has provided for those needs, it is time to move on. To refuse to allow self-pity to have the final say. And so Yahweh recommissions Elijah to his vocation. He calls him back to himself and reassures him that he is still at work in and through him. This element of vocation is a powerful factor in our lives, both on the mountaintops and in the valleys. What are we called to? In what ways are we uniquely gifted and called to live into and point to the kingdom of God on earth? Perhaps it is as a teacher, a supervisor at a grocery store, a lawyer, a mechanic, there are any number of things we can be called to 
that give us unique opportunities to be on mission with God in ways that only we can. And sometimes it might just be a matter of recognizing there is something uniquely timely and holy about a particular season of life that we are in as a parent, as a student, as a retiree. And particular to that season, we have good, hard, holy work to do that calls us out of ourselves and onto a bigger stage where the Lord is at work in and through us to bring about redemption and restoration and the reconciliation of all things. Perhaps we just need a reminder every now and then of how God desires to walk alongside us and use us in and through our gifts and relationships and jobs and seasons of life in order to make our way back out of the wilderness. Sometimes with the psalmist and Elijah and good old Peter, we find ourselves in seasons where we just need to hide ourselves away for a while in the Lord's shelter to be concealed under his cover, set high upon a rock somewhere, to find stillness and silence and healing. And those are good, necessary, holy seasons. But life is not lived on the mountaintop. And so some, even, even as we feel so very far sometimes from the glory of the Lord revealed to the disciples on that mountain... We proclaim with faith together that we believe that we shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I think it's really beautiful that after this wild and glorious moment of transfiguration, our Lord Christ walks back down the mountain with his disciples. He does not leave them to fend for themselves. He does not leave them to walk the hard road by themselves, and he knows that they cannot because he knows the road that is ahead of him. But Christ also knows that because he will walk that hard road, we can too, only by his grace. And so the Lord walks back down the mountain with his disciples, continuing to offer his presence and his patience as they seek to understand and to follow him. They know now the cost of following him. But they have also seen a glimpse of his glory and the kingdom he longs to usher them into, and they know it is all worth it. So friends, as we walk back down together with the Lord, even into a world and a life that seems so utterly void sometimes of that glory that we have beheld, our lives full of their own troubles and disappointments, and difficult paths. Let us wait for the Lord. Let us be strong. Let us allow our hearts to take courage from the saints who have gone before us and the Messiah who gives himself to us and wait for the Lord. Amen.